All right. Well, I'm going to talk about something uh, heavy this morning, and this is entirely independent of our celebration. And I have an agenda that's entirely independent of our celebration that I feel like God is going to execute this morning in this sermon. So would you once again bow your head and pray, Lord? I just ask that you would be here with your people today. I just pray, God, that whoever is here who struggles with shame, God, that you would sovereignly lift their burden. Lord, let them no longer live under it. In Jesus' name, amen. We've looked at a number of emotions in this series. We've looked at anxiety, depression, and envy. The truth is that all of us at some level experience all of these. Uh, shame is no different, whether it ranges from simple embarrassment um, to sometimes something more serious. Uh, I listened uh, to this shared uh, in Andy Stanley's book, Checkpoints, uh, someone who was ashamed of something listened to this account. Because of my family's financial status growing up, I never had the coolest name brand clothes. One year, my parents bought me two pairs of Sears tough skin jeans for school, a brown pair and a blue pair. All the cool kids had Levi's with the silver or red tabs. I hated those kids. I had two pair of tough skins that had to last all year. Even worse, when my jeans started wearing out and getting holes in them, my mom, who was big into cross-stitching, made a huge Indian head on the leg of my brown jeans and an American flag on the rear end of my blue jeans. I can still hear kids pledging allegiance to my rear end. Are you guys alive today? That's funny. I don't care who you are. That's funny. I can still hear kids pledging allegiance to my rear end and calling me Tonto due to the Indian patch. I vowed that I would never have to face that kind of rejection again. Most people have experienced some kind of shame. We don't really know what its role is to play in our lives. We've said that emotions are healthy. They're like smoke that alerts us to a fire that's going on in our soul, to a need that we have spiritually. Most fundamentally, what exactly is shame? Because many defined it inside their heads as extreme guilt. They see guilt and shame as the same thing. Shame is just a little more intense than guilt. Guilt, after all, is feeling bad about something you did. That is guilt. Many feel that shame is feeling really bad then for something that you did. That's not really, however, shame. Shame is altogether different. Guilt can certainly lead to shame. But here's the difference between guilt and shame. Just so we're on the same page. Guilt focuses on the what. Everybody say what. Shame focuses on the who. Everybody say who. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am something bad. Shame 
again, can come through guilt, but it is not guilt, and shame can be triggered by things that have nothing to do with choices that we have made. For many people, shame comes from something you do. You were abused, maybe physically, uh, sexually, verbally, something that has been done to you. Uh, You were talked to or treated in ways that communicate to you that you're no good, that you're worthless, that you're second rate, that you're damaged goods. Eventually, these ideas, they creep inside your soul, and at some point, it becomes not what you did or what was done to you, but who you are. That is the path from guilt to shame. Maybe the cause of the shame in your heart was out of your control. Maybe it's due to, in some part, your physical body and something you're not happy with. Maybe it's some kind of weakness, like an inability to play an instrument or a sport, things that you wish desperately you were good at, but you're not, in fact, good at. I wish desperately that I was good at basketball, but I'm five foot ten and a half, right? Basketball's a challenge for me. Okay, maybe you've become ashamed that you are infertile. Again, can be within our control, can be outside of our control. What is shame then, by definition? Shame is a sense that we are flawed. Shame is where we start believing the things that somebody else has said about us or that we've said about ourselves, that we are unacceptable, that we are... Um, unworthy, that we are defective, we are dirty, we are ugly, we are impure, we are unlovable, we are weak, we are pitiful, we are unwanted. Are you with me? That's shame. And if you're there today, feeling those things and thinking those thoughts, you don't need to think real hard about whether you're there. You know you're there. You know you carry shame. It eats at you on the regular. It's become an inseparable part of your your life. The, the, The backpack is cemented to your shoulder. It's become part of who you are. And by the wonderful grace of God, it does not have to be part of who you are. And I want you to know that. Jesus can liberate you from shame. More on that later. For many of us, others have tried to control us through shame. Maybe your parents. Maybe a friend. Maybe a boss man or woman. Maybe a teacher. Maybe even a pastor or spiritual leader. Somebody tried to make you feel bad about yourself so that you did what they wanted you to do or what they needed you to do. You're lazy. Pick up the pace. You're dumb. Figure it out. You're controlling. Yes, people have said You're controlling in order to control you. (laughs) Brene Brown, a research professor at the University of Houston, she's written a ton on shame. She actually, her TED Talk on shame is one of the top five TED Talks of all time. Uh, I, as a pastime, enjoy watching TED Talks 
on YouTube, TED, all caps. Um, they're very interesting, fascinating uh, presentations. Um, she says that the dilemma is that shame-based motivation often works for the boss man, for the spiritual leader, for the teacher, at least in the short term. It works. She cites a study done at a college campus in which participants in a survey about campus life were given a chance to cheat, to cheat the researchers out of some money. Some of the surveys read, they didn't know this was a test of their own integrity, some of the surveys read how common is cheating on this campus. The other surveys read how common are cheaters. How common is cheating on this campus? How common are cheaters on this campus? Is the only difference. Those who had the question framed in the word cheaters as an identity had a much lower rate of stealing from the researchers when it came to that portion of the test than did those who, who uh, saw it rather as an act of cheating. In other words, the people who thought of cheating in terms of something that they did were more likely to do it than the people who thought of it as something that they were. Does that make sense? Ultimately, however, shame is a bad way to motivate people. It does not work in the long run. Shame can lead to a desperate perfectionism. Someone motivates us through shame. We try to overcome that shame by being what? By being perfect, flawless. We don't want to admit failure because it would affirm, if we failed, that they were right in their assessment of us. So we strive and, and strive. Uh, if we do perform, only then can we say, I did it, I proved it, I exceeded your expectations of me. Therefore, I have worth. Therefore, I matter. Therefore, I, I have significance. Or so the person who is shamed thinks. Shame can lead to harsh criticism. If we're shamed, we criticize other people, we criticize ourselves. People who suffer from shame are very hard on themselves. They point out even in others what they don't like about in themselves. You may have heard it said it's hurt people that what? Hurt people. Hurt people hurt others. Okay? Shame also produces helplessness. People who deal with shame, they forecast the absolute worst. Uh, they predict the worst. They're never going to like me. They're, they're never going to have a good friendship with me. This, too, is going to fall apart like everything else. The worst is assumed because down inside, the person believes they are the worst and that they deserve the worst. So today, we're going to share a story with that introduction out of the way about a woman in the Bible with shame, and we're going to see how Jesus lifted her out of that. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 43. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. 
And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, the woman that we're going to tell you about, her story doesn't begin with her. It begins with this man named Jairus, who is a dignitary of sorts. He's high in society. He's very respected. He holds one of the top positions in his city. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. So this man, Jairus, falls at Jesus' feet. Grown men in Jewish society would never do this if they weren't desperate. They wore these dignified robes. They, they walked around in slow and stately ways. They never appeared quickened or hurried. They always wanted to look like they had it together. They would never throw themselves down at another grown man's feet. Verse 42, for he had an only daughter... Now we start to get the sense of his desperation. About 12 years of age, and she was what? She was dying. She was dying. Verse 43, and there was a woman. Okay, this is a story within a story. Jesus is on his way to help Jairus and to ultimately heal his beautiful little 12-year-old girl. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for, 20, for 12 years, okay, since the little girl coincidentally was born. 12 years. And though she'd spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Having an issue of blood, what does that mean? It's a polite way of saying that she had a disease that produced an uncontrollable menstrual cycle. So she would just bleed incessantly. She was not only sick, it, it is likely that she had chronic pain, that she had severe pain uh, in her abdominal area, um, both physically due to her condition and emotionally, of course, due to the fact that she could not have what? Children? She had immense social pain in that society had cast her out according to Jewish law. What was the word that she would be called? Unclean. She was unclean. No one dare come, come near her. No one would touch her with, with a 10-foot a, a pole or however the saying goes. How would you feel if you hadn't been hugged in 12 years I'm a hugger, man. I hug my wife. I hug my kids. I hug grown men sometimes. I'm just a hugger. It's just who I am. It's just it's the way I was shown affection as a kid. It's a way I show affection to, to others. How would you feel if you hadn't been hugged in 12 years? That would devastate me if I couldn't hug another human being. Mind you, she cannot, in her destitute state of isolation, flip on Hulu or pull out her smartphone to entertain herself. She doesn't have entertainment. She's alone. All of her hopes for life, furthermore marriage, kids, all of that, uh, seem over now. And Luke, who is a medical doctor, lets us know, according to the practice available at that time, that she was incurable. She could not be cured. He even tells us that she spent her family fortune trying to get a cure 
and was unable to be cured. So now she's diseased, she's broke. She's destitute. One last observation. Luke gave us Jairus' name. Did Luke give us the woman's name? He did not. Could have been intentional on Luke's part, his way of telling us that she was nameless. She didn't really have a name as far as anybody knew. They just knew her as this woman with this issue of of blood. She's hidden. She's invisible. She's hidden herself because that's what shame does to people lest they be exposed and more humiliated than they already are. So those of us with shame, we, we hide. Do you see the contrast with the other character we've met so far, Jairus? Jairus is the ruler of the synagogue. She's not allowed in the synagogue. Jairus has a beautiful daughter. She has nobody. Jairus is well-respected. She has been rejected. By the way, in this story, you see illustrated the, the different kinds of people and what they need from, from Jesus. What keeps people from coming to Jesus. In Jairus' case, what is it up to this point? It's been his pride. He waited until this got bad. His little girl's almost dead. He's high on a pedestal. He's lofty. It took what it often takes with us, tragedy, for us to admit any vulnerability whatsoever for us to reveal any scars, for us to go to our fellow man for any help, we wait until it gets bad, just like Jairus did. Because we don't normally need people. So it takes the death of a loved one or a job loss or a health scare to cause us to go to Jesus. And it's through these things that God often wakes us up and maybe that's happening to you right now and maybe God's saying you know what you really don't have it all together do you you need me I care about you quit living as if there's no God turn to me I'm here I care I'm available to you now what about the woman what was it that kept her from coming to Jesus she's a bit different she's not proud she's what She's ashamed. She's ashamed. That's what keeps her from coming to God. And her shame has led her to despair. It's not that she doesn't know uh, that she needs Jesus' help. Uh, it's that she doesn't think she's worth Jesus' help. It's not that she thinks she doesn't need Jesus' help. It's that she thinks she's not worth Jesus' help. She wants to touch him because in touching Jesus and only touching Jesus and doing it in this ninja-like clandestine way, she doesn't have to confront Jesus. She doesn't have to see Jesus eye to eye. 
she doesn't have to ask thing, anything of, of Jesus. She only needs to clutch his garment. Because if he sees her, if he discovers her, then he won't heal her. Because everybody else who's discovered her has yet to heal or help her. This isn't reality, of course, with Jesus, but it's what's going on inside her head. And it's why she wants to touch his clothes and not have a conversation. She's ashamed. And I want you to see this morning that biblically, this woman represents every one of us. We are unclean. We have sinned against God. And if it were possible to get a healing and to get fixed without expressing our vulnerability, that would be the route that we would take too. Verse 44. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. That word touched means literally clutched, just like you clutch a rope that you were hanging from or a vine. The Gospel of Mark says that she had heard about Jesus, and that's what led her to try this. She'd heard about him. Malachi 4.2 had even prophesied that the wings of his garment, there'd be healing in his wings or in his garment. So legend had it, legend had it in her day, that it only takes touching his clothes to be healed. But here's her dilemma. If people see her, they scorn her. And Jesus, the holy man, well, gosh, he would, of all people, send her packing back home. And so if she just sneaks through, maybe, maybe something will happen. Verse 44, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Who was it that touched me? Now, let me ask you something. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Could be that he's willing, willingly laying down his divinity in this moment and, and saying, who touched me with a human aspect of his character? He added on to his divinity, humanity. Could be, but it's more plausible, I think. Um, of course he knows who touched. Have you ever seen one of your kids sneak into a cookie jar? And they sit there on the recliner and they have like chocolate and cookie crumbs around their lips. And they don't know you saw them, so you put them to the test and you say, who took a cookie out of the cookie jar? Did you as a parent know who took the cookie out of the cookie jar? Of course you know who took the cookie. You ask the question not to find out who took the cookie, but so that you would give the child an opportunity to identify him or herself. This is what I believe Jesus was doing. He's given his child a chance to identify herself. In asking the question, Jesus was saying, tell me who you are because I have something better, even better than the healing that, than you, just, that you just received. What is it? What could possibly be better? Verse 45. Master, Peter says, the crowds surround you. And are pressing in on you. Peter has this like innate ability. 
after this profound moment to say something profoundly stupid, doesn't he? Like, there's a lot of touching going on here, Peter. You know, like, you'd think Jesus, you know, would just get perturbed with some things that he says. Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Okay? And, you know, thanks, Peter. What would I do without your amazing insight, you know? Um, but Jesus said, but Jesus said, he comes back more graciously than you or I would have, someone touch me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. This was not church just a touch. It was a touch of faith. She believed that she was going to be healed. And there's a big difference between a touch and a touch that comes out of faith of a human being. Lots of people come to church on the weekends. That's the crowd. Lots of people here touching Jesus. But a few of you are reaching out in faith. You're desperate for God. You need him this morning. That's a whole different level. Verse 47. And when the woman saw, and when the woman saw, this is the real miracle. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and fell down at Jesus' feet. And before Jesus declared in the presence of all the people, how many of the people? All of them. She's yelling at the top of her lungs why she'd touched him and how she'd been immediately healed. Does she care that she is seen now? She does not care. She is unashamed. And that's the true miracle. The very last thing this woman was wanted was exposure. But when the rabbi liberated her from her shame, it was then that she was moved to, to tears. She realizes that she doesn't have to hide anymore. It was then that she trembled at the goodness of God. She fell down under the weight of his incredible grace. She came out. She made it public. She made it known to all the people that she wasn't going to hide anymore, that she was healed and that she was worth it, that she was clean, that she was acceptable, that she was pure, that she was strong, that she was significant, that she was of value. She was wanted for the first time in 12 years. And Jesus wants you to know through her story that you're wanted Jesus wants you to know through her story that you're significant. Jesus wants you to know through her story this morning that he treasures you. One of the more popular movie musicals in, in recent memory is called The Greatest Showman. If you have not seen The Greatest Showman, you need to go rent it today. If it's not in Marshfield, you need to drive to Wausau. The Burrises um, do not buy movies. Just for us, it's not worth it, the $15, because we're not going to watch it five times. Okay? So we don't buy movies, but we bought this one. We bought it. 
because the dancing and the music and the storyline is brilliantly done. It's a story that brings to life the internal struggle of shame that people have felt when employed by the circus. Freaks, they've been historically called, and the producers allow us to get the closest, perhaps emotionally, to a bearded lady named Letty, played by Kiala Settle. And she has this breakout moment in a breakout song, not unlike the breakout moment in the lady who had the issue of blood after she was dramatically, beautifully healed by none other than Jesus Christ. And in this moment, Letty breaks out of her shame. Here's a bit of the lyrical content. I am not a stranger to the dark. Was the lady with issue of blood a stranger to the dark? No, she was not. Hide away, they say. We don't want your broken parts. I've learned to be ashamed of all my scars. Run away, they say. No one will love you as you are. But I won't let them break me down to dust. I know that there's a place for us, for we are glorious. When the sharpest words want to cut me down, I'm going to send a flood. I'm going to drown them out. I am brave. I am bruised. I am who I'm meant to be. This is me. Look out, because here I come. And I'm marching on to the beat I drum. I'm not scared to be seen. I make no apologies. This is me. What you may not know is that Kiala struggled with shame in her own life. Independent of the film, and as much as the song did for the character in the movie, it did for her personally. Watch this. Benj and Justin had just written this new song called This Is Me. And uh, we knew that it was going to be the anthem of the film, um, but no one had heard it before. And no one had heard Kiala sing it live. And Kiala, who I didn't even want to come out from behind the music stand. I didn't. I, I kept saying to her, just step out, because this is your moment, and you have to step out into the ring, metaphorically, because that's what you're doing. And you got to stand right there in front of everyone and just belt this out. And I didn't want to. In fact, I stood behind that music stand yeah. until the day of that presentation. There was a moment in the song that I actually was so scared that I had to actually grab Hugh's hand so that I had somebody to hold on to. And then we got to the end of the number and all I remember is just deafening, deafening applause. It was a sort of otherworldly experience. It was one of those moments that will stay with me the rest of my life. Unfortunately, we filmed it. I'm not a stranger to the dark. Hide away, they say, cause we don't want your broken parts. I've learned to be ashamed of all my scars. Run away, they say, no one will love you as you are. But
exposed in all your shame and all your ugliness in mass before a holy God. Verse 48, and Jesus said to her, we'll end with this, daughter. He didn't call her stranger. He didn't call her ma'am. He called her daughter. It's one of the most stunning addresses in all of the scriptures. Jesus used a word you would never use to address somebody that you had never before met. And he calls the bearded lady of his time daughter. He didn't let her steal a miracle in secret because as much as he wanted to heal her body, he knew she needed her this-is-me moment. A moment where she emphatically declares what is true, that she's accepted, that she's valuable, that she's adored, that she's treasured, she's appreciated, that she's worth it. And so are you all. Never forget that. Father, I pray, just like the woman in Luke 8, you said in the final verse 48, you said, go, your faith has made you well, go in peace. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would liberate us from our shame. I pray we'd have our moment of declaring that we're done with our recollections of the past, that we're done wallowing, we're done rolling around the mud. What we've done or what's been done to us is not who we are. Lord, let that be our song. Let that be the truth that we hold on to when times are dark in the mighty powerful name of Jesus. Amen.